0: Hello and welcome to "Let the Bird Fly," a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are continuing our uh, COVID nineteen online learning experience for Wisconsin Lutheran College. Now
1: off campus. Yeah. We so were encouraged to be off campus. So uh, we're at my home church, yeah. which we uh, we were able to get a little area uh, of just two of us. We're less than ten. In a far corner that's been heavily sanitized.
0: We're taking the uh, German way of doing
1: things where
0: you can only have two people. Yeah, I want to look that up.
1: They really did that though, (laughs) huh?
0: So um, today we're in the uh, introduction to scripture. So freshman 105 theology. And uh, what I do with my students is I say, we got one day to do Romans. It's not fair enough, but we're doing an overview of, of scripture and so they're supposed to read all of Romans, and I have a packet where they take notes. And so for this, uh, uh, Wade and I are just going to kind of give an overview of Romans, highlight things, not going to do it justice as, uh, as it deserves. Um, but on campus, we have a whole class just on Romans that you're teaching right now, Wade. So um, this will a be a good class. Uh, that's what I heard, too. Um, so there is um, more that you that students can take, obviously, and they're going to get Romans Every which way. Let's start with this. Um, more and more, and I think uh, you or somebody else pointed this out to me that you should think about Romans as St. Paul's kind of catechism, right? Yeah. I mean, he's making an argument here, right? He is going to start. Uh, uh, he
1: has a thesis it, statement, is yeah. what I tell my students.
0: And he's going to start with kind of natural law, and then he's going to go to two kinds of righteousness and stuff like that. What What do you think the thesis statement is? Let me, I
1: mean, Romans one seventeen. So. Um, the just shall live by faith or the righteous will live by faith. And put in 16 and
0: 17 together there. And then he goes there. right
1: into the problem. Yep. Second half of chapter one through chapter two, and then God's righteousness revealed. And then he unpacks what that looks like with faith and promise and Abraham, baptism, the struggle of the baptized, the simile, hope in the spirit, uh, grounded in God's election, uh, which is... Uh, part of God's free declaration of uh, grace for all, uh, a righteousness of faith. And then we get to what we might talk about on here, so I won't steal our thunder.
0: Let's put 16 and 17 together. I'll read that. I usually
1: do have them read them together.
0: For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power, the Greek word there is dynamis, where we get dynamite, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, as it is written. And here's the thesis statement, the righteous will live by faith. But he's going Which to unpack that is nicely, that a little bit.
1: in a appalling way, a quotation from the Old Testament, yep. from Habakkuk. And
0: so, St. Paul, as he brings together these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians, is saying this is what the gospel was always about from the very beginning, right? From Genesis 3, all the way down to Jesus' uh, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, this is all about Jesus being righteous in our place.
1: You didn't bring these tables here, Mike, did you? No, they were here. Oh, okay, good. They look like I was going <laughs> to...
0: So um, Romans 1, let's talk about... Well, let's talk about the power of the gospel right away. So um, uh, it's the the Greek word there for power, like I said, dinus. it's uh, kind of like where we get the word dynamite. And so it has power. So my students know make a big deal about saying... God's word can do something, right? From the beginning, he says, let there be light and there is light. It is, there's something going on here. It has the power to create. It has the power to create uh, ex nihil um, out of nothing. So out of nothing, there was light, but also out of something that's dead, like a dead heart, there can be the creation of faith. And so we, we connect, we have connected um, creation, the spirit, the word hovering over the waters of the deep. And there's a connection with baptism there, right? The spirit, the word, and water, and is, be able to create faith out of something, a dead heart. Um, let's go into chapter two in the law. Uh, maybe I'll ask you this question. Uh, when when St. Paul writes the word law, what does he mean? And in different circumstances, he may mean different things. So w- maybe talk about uh, Paul's use of the word law there, Wade.
1: Sure. The. Something that's maybe hard for us to wrap our head around in the New Testament is we hear law and we think of law as um, just one big thing, right? Law is anything that says do this or don't do that. Um, That's actually helpful in a sense, but when we're talking Old Testament law, we could be talking Mosaic law, um, which is a specific law code, just like Justinian, you know, go to Hammurabi, the Justinian code, the... um, the local ordinances of the city of Milwaukee. Uh, So we can be talking Mosaic law, um, ceremonial law, civil law, moral law. Or we can be talking generically, all that which says do this and don't do that. um, Or we can be talking the scriptures as a whole. So sometimes when Paul uses law in Romans, and I think um, in Romans uh, 8 and 9 you see this somewhat, he probably means Torah, Torah being all that God has revealed. Um, Psalm 119 is famous for, you can't really understand Psalm 119 unless you understand that the psalmist there is saying Torah uh, in many instances for everything God has revealed, which is how the Jews would have referred to it. Or law and the
0: prophets, kind of like a summary of the whole, yeah.
1: And so um, you get some places like Galatians and it becomes really important to say, okay, is he talking about Mosaic law or is he talking about all law? Um, in Romans, I think you kind of have to take it sometimes a chapter-by-chapter chapter basis. But I would say usually the situation is law kind of being any human striving to achieve salvation according to to works. Um, that's what the law comes into. And so the law is that which gives you works to try to do, and then you twist it to try to earn salvation with it, right? That's not the law's fault. Or the law is that which exposes what is sin, which ironically can increase, multiply sin by exposing it. Um, but especially, uh, he's dealing, as he builds his argument when he's talking about law, those who want to use works to try to attain a righteousness.
0: Mm-hmm. And we'll get that. I mean, he's setting this up for chapter 3, of course. And it's
1: not only the Jews, because if it were just the Jewish law, then things, for instance, like. Um, Romans 10 wouldn't it make a whole lot of sense.
0: And so, yeah, maybe backtrack a little bit. There is an, what we might call natural law. Um, and we look out into the world, and uh, St. Paul says in, chapter, in verse 20 of chapter 1, that even though the Gentiles, so remember Gentiles is anybody who is not Jewish, um, even though they didn't have the Old Testament law from Moses from Mount Sinai, they had a law written on their heart. Not only that, but they could look out into the world, and they could come to the conclusion that there is an orderer. There is somebody who orders this, and so he's he's quite frankly very frank with this, um, and says the Gentiles are without excuse. They they should know that there is a law. Um, they it has not been revealed to them that there is going to be a Messiah um, directly through revelation, um, but they sh- they they are without excuse when it comes to knowing that there is a right and a wrong, there is an objective morality. You you don't have to, uh, you don't look very far in nature or in your conscience without understanding that. So I tell my students to think about these two kinds of righteousness as two systems. System number one is a righteousness by law. And instead of thinking about the Ten Commandments and God's law as a protection of the gift, Don't do this because I want you to uh, have the protection of this. You should enjoy the stuff that you have. Don't covet anybody else's because when you do that, um, it's no longer a gift there. And so people strive to be righteous um, according to their law. And as you said, they'll twist God's law or they'll make up their own law. They'll make excuses for breaking the law. Um, when we talk about the Ten Commandments, every time you break a commandment, you're breaking the first commandment. If you steal, you're saying, God, you have not provided enough for me. You're not a very good God. I need to play God. And so you break the first commandment that you shall have no other gods but him. And so when we're in this system of righteousness by law, then we have to make excuses. We'll have to say, well, God, if you had given me more, I wouldn't have had to do this, and I like to tell my students like these kind of excuses didn't work in kindergarten. They're not going to work before God, right? So, the righteousness by law, first of all, is a dead end for us because we cannot be righteous. Think just right. Am I right? Not only that, but it's a really bad system for family love, right? It's a quid pro quo relationship. It is no longer a relationship. When Americans of, are anti quid pro quo. <laughs> uh, we are. Uh, we. Uh, made this father's grace and undeserved love into a business agreement. We, we shake hands with God and say, I'll do this. And then you do this for me. And and then what's interesting and St. Paul points this out then, then God is obligated to do something for us. Then it's no longer love In, in this system. He's begrudgingly giving you what you deserve. But again, that's a dead end because what we really deserve is hell. So then he says there is a second righteousness. So he's got his thesis statement in uh, verse 17 and then plays out what the law is. And then he goes to chapter three and he says that there is a righteousness that is outside of us, right? It's extra nos. It's outside of us. This righteousness does not come from us striving to fulfill the law, but it's alien. Think outside of us. It's a foreign thing. It's a righteousness by faith. So to work it out, and this is the system of righteousness by faith, is that Christ is righteous in our place. We get his righteousness. He takes our sin. And then we, we can reject that. Um, and so we would put ourselves back into the first system, the righteousness by law. And what we're asking God to do is, well, judge us for our actions. And this is a, this is a dead end for us. A righteousness by faith says, this is really good. This is a really good situation for me. (laughs) This is good news. That's what the gospel is. And there comes a freedom from that, right? You don't have to strive to find value and find righteousness. You don't have to justify your actions anymore because you are already just. You are already declared righteous. More than that, made righteous in in the eyes of God. And, And then he, interestingly, I think, uh, and wisely, in chapter 4, says, just so you know Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, this was kind of always the case, right? You already mentioned that he had had referred back to Habakkuk in this thesis statement, but he goes right to Abraham, right? And he points out that the Old Testament scriptures, our Old Testament, their, their Hebrew Bible, says that Abraham was justified by faith. It was... He believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness um maybe play with that word reckon" just a little bit wade what What does it mean when um when when the scriptures say it was reckoned as righteousness to Abraham because he believed
1: sure the um when we're when we're talking about justification or righteousness, we're talking about two words that are essentially the same word, right? They're just emphasizing different things um, as we use them in English. Uh, the one who is righteous is just and the one who is just is righteous. And so this is a a standing, one standing type picture that's being used and especially in a judicial sense. Um, so I'm sure Dr. Berg has driven home a number of times for you um, that righteousness is a declaration by God and it's a forensic thing. It's spoken so this is a this is a a verdict, um, the
0: courtroom and, scene, right? Which we right. played out more and more,
1: yeah. And so the difference is we we tend to naturally look for righteousness, um, inward righteousness, righteousness within us. We try to, at the end of the day, it's assess our day: were we good? Were we bad? Where could we have been better? What are we glad that we did? Um, and most human religion is going to point us there as well. There might be external aids. That religions might point us to, you know, um, this will help you be more righteous. So wear this, or go to this place, or eat this thing, or don't eat that thing. But when we're talking about uh, righteousness as the New Testament presents it, we're talking about an external righteousness, not just an external aid to help us be righteous, but it's the righteousness of another person. Someone's innocence becomes our innocence, right? Um, and so this is an imputed righteousness. What is imputed? It's, it's to, to put something on or in something to give it's, um, rec. Puto can be like, suppose it, right. It's, um, this is now this thing, which was someone else's is now taken to be yours. Also, um, there's something of the adoption picture here, right? Someone's last name uh, is now reckoned to you. It's now taken to be your last name, um, think of a, um, a a powerful ruler perhaps lends protection to something uh, that that person's protection or power is reckoned to be yours. So the idea of credited or reckoned here, um, the emphasis is on this is something that's external to me that's not my own, but now is considered to be my own. And so that it's credited, uh, really a credit card is not a bad way to think of this. If uh, um if you kind of, you know, you go off to college, and I don't know if they do this anymore, but remember when we went, Mike, and everybody's offering you credit cards? Mm-hmm. And So let's say you got one of those credit cards, and then you weren't the most responsible spender, right? Let's say maybe your name was Wade. Um, and you accrued a little bit of debt. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, you know, you kind of own up to your parents. You know, I'm going to have to work some extra this summer. And, well, why? Because I uh, have credit card bill, you know. And, uh, and, and they decide to do you a solid and they pay that bill for you. Well, technically, you didn't pay that bill, but in Visa's sight, your bill is mm-hmm. is paid. Um, and so, you
0: have good credit now, right. or that yes, kind of thing. Right, yes, you have
1: good credit. You are innocent financially before that company. And that's the idea of the reckoned or the credited. Uh, Abraham's righteousness was not an internal righteousness uh, that he summoned, although, um, right, Abraham will, there will be evidence of his righteousness in these great moments of faith. But that righteousness that will be evidenced will be works of faith. And this is why Paul in Romans and Galatians 2 really hits on works of the spirit, right? These are different than works of the flesh. So Abraham being willing to sacrifice Isaac is a work of the spirit. Um, it flows from the righteousness that was credited to him because he be, he believed God. And so in essence, God says this righteousness is yours. It's declared to be your own. Um, and faith says Amen. Mm-hmm. Right. The unbeliever says, "No, I'll got. I have this. I'll handle it myself." And so the unbeliever like becomes like the person who wants to be their own defense attorney at trial. You know, Manson, I believe, did that, and he ended up in prison. That Dylan Roof did that. He ended up in prison. It never works very well that that person wants to stand with their own righteousness. Um, and if
0: you are your own lawyer, you have a fool
1: for a client. Right. Yeah. So it, the, the emphasis on this credited or reckoned is that it's something external to me. And that's, Mike got it before well. In Romans 10, it becomes important too. You can chase after, um, there's two kinds of righteousness with which you can stand before God. The righteousness of works and the righteousness of faith. The Romans 10 really unpacks this. Um, the righteousness of works, that righteousness actually works pretty well down here. Mm-hmm. You can be a good neighbor, a good citizen. You get along pretty well with people. But the, the, the funny thing with the righteousness of works, and Paul leads Romans chapter 10 with this, um, is that Moses said, the one who's going to do the commandments must live by them. So you have to keep them perfectly. So you can try to stand before God with the righteousness of works, but the only way that works is if you've done it perfectly and you know you haven't. And then there's the righteousness of faith, which is gift, which Paul says comes through hearing.
0: And you live by the law, you die by the law, right? And right. we see this in everyday life. What we call that person a hypocrite who likes to point out everybody else's uh, problems and then, then they feel like they are somehow exempt um, from the same accusation. Okay, chapter 5, we have this things called the, uh, concept called two atoms. So you have the first Adam, think Adam, think mankind or humanity. The first Adam came and he fell into sin. And he was living by faith, right, in a certain sense. But then he says, I want to be like God. He says, "Um, uh, I can do this on my own. I can be like God. And then he falls into sin, and with that, all of humanity. And so St. Paul says, through one man, through one Adam, through Adam, sin comes. But then there's a second Adam. There's a second man, and that is Jesus Christ, who then lives in actual righteousness life, right? So through one Adam, through one Adam, through one man comes sin and the death, which follows through the second Adam comes righteousness and the life that follows the life here on earth of a righteous saint, but also a life forever in heaven. I don't know that we need to unpack that anymore. That's, that, that's probably good enough. I'd really like to get to chapter six, which is my favorite, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible where it's a good one. He starts talking about baptism and he starts out with, don't you know that all of you who are baptized in Christ Jesus have been crucified with Christ Jesus. you died with Christ Jesus. You have been buried with Christ Jesus. And we could spend just hours and hours unpacking just those, those few verses. Chapter six connects the person in an intimate way with Jesus Christ. So, when he says you die with Christ and are crucified, he's talking about your sinful nature has been crucified with Christ. It's dead. It's been killed. It's no longer. And you are then resurrected to live a new life as a saint. So, remember, students, the symbol simultaneously sinner, saint at the same time. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you're 100% sinner, 100% saint. The math doesn't work out, but it sure explains your life, doesn't
1: it? And, and this is going to tie to Romans 5 where Romans, right, three and four, he's gonna build on the Abraham theme. Romans five, second half is gonna be Adam and Christ. And so in Romans six, when, you're, when you die in your baptism, what's being put to death? Your old Adam. Mm-hmm. Well, what's receiving newness of life? Your new man. What is your new man? Well, your new man is Christ dwelling in you through faith, right? So this is, we see this typology uh, being developed still there as well.
0: It's almost as if the whole Bible was about Christ. Like it from seems the beginning, that way, from the beginning,
1: except and, in the Old Testament.
0: <laughs> and when he starts chapter six, he he, he asks a question that uh, you know maybe the skeptic or, or, or the the smart person is already thinking about. Right? You can you can tell that as a teacher, you can head off these questions that you're already. You may say to the student, "Well, I know what you're thinking right now, right?" And so uh, Saint Paul saying, "I know what you're thinking right now, right? That the more I sin, then the more God's grace." is gonna come to
1: me and then we're like oh no I wasn't thinking that yeah. like deep down you're like yeah I, I was kind know, of thinking about that like I, I can just do
0: whatever that. I want then right Yeah. and so I just do not want to admit it <laughs> so he says what shall we say then shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means we are those who have died to sin how can we live in it any longer and that's when he says or don't you know that all of us who are baptized in Christ Jesus so he is making an argument here that says you're not that person anymore you've been resurrected to live a new person but we don't want to miss we don't want to just make it about law well now I'm, I'm a good person I get that. Um, baptism is something that is an identity right and it's it doesn't it only happens once but then again with confession absolution it happens all the time. It's a daily kind of thing that my sinful nature dies when I confess my sins and uh, uh, the saint resurrects and is a new or is resurrected and, is the new person that's now going to live this righteous life? So, and and he's going to get to that later, you know, in in um, seven and eight. Well, really seven, when he's going to talk about the slavery to sin and the slavery to righteousness. We'll get to that in a second. But I don't want to miss the grace of this, right? That um, I I'm I am intimately connected to Jesus Christ so much that I have died, been buried, and have been resurrected with Him. First to live a new life right now as a saint still a sinner, but one day to have a bodily resurrection to live forever in heaven. And so every day is a new day. And I would suggest those of you who are baptized that you you pull out your baptismal certificate, frame it on your uh, bedroom wall. And every day you go out there and say, whatever you got from me world today, um, you can't unring the bell, the historical fact that I was baptized into Christ, that I'm saved, that I am righteous. Uh, bring it on, world, right? Every day is a new day in a, in a very, you know, very old, real way.
1: 2020 has made me, I agree with this sentiment there, but 2020 has already kind of taught me to not dare the world. <laughs> <laughs> like well, I'll look at it and I'll be like, all right, let's 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 do this day, but yeah. I don't think I want to be like, world, but, but Saint, what do you got for us next?
0: But St. Paul will then say, what can what what can separate us from? God? right, love I'm just trying to say we don't get maybe ask for more. <laughs> well, and that's that's actually kind of a timely topic right now because some people take this as well. God's got it, so I can just like walk around and do whatever I want. And, and it's the same. Kind of like it's lick hand. right? Like I'm like tempting God, right? And it's the same thing when someone says or thinks this before Romans chapter six, the first verse. Well, then I guess I guess get to sin right? Well, I get everything's okay with God so I can just live my life. It, I don't have to fear anything. Well, he did give you a brain, right? And um, and notice that um, <clears throat> tempting God is not, is not what a saint does. Tempting God is what the old Adam does, right? So you still live your life. You still use your brain. What you don't do is you don't live in fear of the ultimate. Like, Nobody can take away my baptism, right? They may take everything else. So I can say to the I world. I
1: tried to take away your baptism one day and <laughs> I couldn't do couldn't it. Couldn't do it. It's, it's crazy. Historically, I even asked Peter and Ben, I'm like, this would be a great prank. Let's take away Mike's baptism. You can't do it. No.
0: You can't undo it just like you can't undo. So instead
1: I just like hung something on a you bathroom sh- stall. You can't, as you
0: can't, un- you can't undo, um, you know, the 1948 um, World Series.
1: What if the Astros were in it? Right.
0: The asterisks were not. Yet but if a they were? You can at least there. put an asterisk. You could put asterisks, but you can't undo it. Oh,
1: no, that's true.
0: And isn't that kind of a thing? They're trying? That's actually kind of a legitimate philosophical question. Can you undo it? Can you just erase that? Can you say like, um, World War II didn't happen because you know they cheated, right? It still happened, right? It still happened. You can put uh, all sorts of asterisks by that, and you can try to explain it, but it still happened, right? So you can say world, you're going to probably be pretty crappy to me today, but you can't take that baptism away. And so every day is a new day. Let's get into chapter seven there and talk about the slavery. And it's really, again, I tell my students all the time, right? You see the word slavery and you go, what the heck is the Bible talking about here? Remember, slavery in the American situation is different than the slavery back then. Not saying slavery back then was nice, it certainly wasn't, it was immoral, all, all of the rest, but it would be an insult to think about, um, to, to say that uh, the slavery back then was akin to the, 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 the tragedy and the suffering that those African Americans went through in the South. And so we wouldn't talk in terms of slavery today, right, because that's a kind of a taboo thing, you wouldn't flippantly use this as an analogy, and yet St. Paul does. And what he says is that the sinner cannot help but sin. That's what a sinner does. And so a a sinner is rightfully a slave to sinfulness. I think it is helpful. It's not a perfect example, but it is helpful to think about the addiction analogy in this. Like I know what not to say to my wife. I know that there's going to be a hangover for a couple of days. I'm getting better, but I still do it. I still have this desire to be righteous, to remind her that she's wrong in this situation, that I'm right, that maybe I've been pulling my weight more than she has this kind of, kind of thing. And so why do I keep doing it when I know the high is not going to be that great. And it's only going to produce a hangover. Well, I'm addicted to sin and I can't stop. And I look at the world and I say, if we could overcome sin, don't you think we would have at least gotten rid of like genocide, you know, uh, and so it really does explain us. What's actually even harder to understand is that the saint, the righteous, simultaneously sinner saint, remember, that the saint cannot help but do righteous things. So the saint is a slave to righteousness. And we don't like that. We want to be free. But, but, but he's using, um, it's kind of an oxymoron. When you are a slave to righteousness, that's when you're actually free because you're free to be who you're supposed to be you are to be a person of love and that actually is freeing you're not compelled to do it that's just the way you are that's just the way you are this is what a righteous person does and so uh, you can use the analogy of somebody who is an addict and you have an intervention with that person and the person says it's my body I can do what I want with it you go no that's actually a slavery, even though you've convinced yourself that that's freedom. And so I'm going around and I'm a righteous person doing good things. I can try to talk myself out of it and go, oh, I have to do this or whatever. That's not the saint talking. That's the the sinner talking. And so it's very difficult for un- us to understand the concept of freedom and the slavery to righteousness, Right. But that's our sinful person screws that up. Anything you want to add to that? Some wisdom?
1: You know, nothing that you want me to add. I, I have a good, like, workers of the world unite type <laughs> perspective on, on this. But. You'll
0: have to take Wade's, uh, Dr. Johnson's Romans class to get that. How yeah. Well, yeah. All yeah right.
1: I don't even know. You might not necessarily <laughs> go to right there.
0: But. Romans 8. So this is one of the most famous chapters of the Bible. This is, uh, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard some, you know, uh, in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. The, those kinds of kinds of passages, and, and the 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 way he, he argues this, and, and this is this is the sinner saint in the world. And there's great comfort that comes from being a part of God's family in baptism, Romans chapter six, uh, being secure um, uh, in righteousness, but yet also being a sinner, chapter seven. And God says, "Yeah, it's going to be crappy, right?" Yeah, there's going to be that. He even goes so far as the creation groans, groans for uh, righteousness, for 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 a better day, for heaven. Really, he even says that uh, uh, connects this to a woman in labor, right? And he makes the analogy there that the pain of a woman going through labor seems to be washed away when she holds that baby for the very first time, um, and so. In the same way, the suffering that we go through right now is going to seem so small when we get to the glories of heaven. So you may think of like an ocean, all the waters, all the oceans of, of, of the world. And this is the glory that you're going to have in heaven. And the pain that you have right now is like one just little drop of water, like one bead of water and it's everything to us right now it's just so painful it's it's uh, we cry out right as a woman in child childbearing and yet when we get to heaven it's going to seem so small so think about your greatest pain right now this is measured in a drop of water compared to the glory that you will have in heaven and so it's not like it's not like there is equal amount of glory for the pain that you went through here right so like if the pain you went through here was uh, ten dollars and then you get ten dollars worth of glory in heaven no it's like ten dollars of pain here and trillions and tr- not that we can't even we don't even have numbers for that uh, uh, words for those numbers trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of riches in heaven all right, let's get to 9 and 10, and I'm going to let you do this, 9 and 10. Just kind of give a brief overview. Sure. You've already talked about 10 and, a little and bit, I think but the, you're better at this than I am.
1: I think to um, understand 9, we're going to want to understand the second half of 8. So, Mike, you quoted verse 28, um, and if I can just read 29 and 32. Paul writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, For those God foreknew, elected, chose, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, elected, chose, right? He also called, uh, those he called, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. So Paul has already taken this back to um, the cause of our salvation is God's election. And what he wants to make plain now is that God's election is an election of of grace. So God's election of you was made before you were even a twinkle in your parents' eyes. And yet, um, it was delivered to you. It was made known to you through baptism and through the preaching of the Word. Now, when we talk about election, people get really tempted to say, Well, if God chooses some to be saved, then he must, Mike
0: choose some to be damned.
1: And this is what, especially amongst the, uh, the second generation of Calvinists and third generation was developed as double predestination. It's there in Calvin as well. He calls it kind of this like terrifying teaching. Um, it's not central to his teaching, um, but it will become central to Calvinism. And there I always challenge students to read the scriptures and find me a spot where election is used for anything other than comfort. And where they usually like to go if they're of a reform background is to chapter nine. Um, and specifically to chapter nine, verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. <coughs> and there it's important that we understand what Paul is doing there. We can talk about, uh, election historically, and then we can talk about eternal election. Uh, God historically elected Jacob to receive the birthright and not Esau. Do you agree with this, Mike? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but he elected Jacob for Esau's own good. Why? Because the Savior would come through Jacob. So this is showing God's providence in his election of Jacob uh, for the line of the Savior. The same is when Paul here will talk about uh, some being vessels of mercy and, and some being <clears throat> vessels of, of wrath. This also is, as we look historically, is how God has done things. He punishes the, North, the the Israelites with the Babylonians and then he punishes the Babylonians with the uh, with the Medes and the Persians. But uh, what Paul is going to build this into then is specifically the question is about God electing the Gentiles. Um, and he says that this righteousness of faith, uh, this justification of, with external righteousness has become a stumbling block for many of the Jews. Uh, They stumble over the stumbling stone. And why is this? Um, Because the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. And here is where the doctrine of election is so important for understanding a righteousness that is by faith. It precludes anything in us as the grounds for us being chosen and justified and declared righteous. It makes it so that God's love is rooted entirely in God. So that if I were to say, why does God love you? The only real answer is because he does. He has chosen us because he has. Now, if you ever find yourself speculating, well, how do I know that I've been elected to righteousness? What if I'm going to be damned? You're using the doctrine of election wrong. The doctrine of election is always used to come to those who are uh, um, in the faith and to say, God has chosen you and his love before you could even do a good work God has chosen you and so even here in Romans chapter 9 election is being used to demonstrate God's ch- grace namely in his choosing of uh, the Gentiles and of his choosing of that which didn't seem like it should be the first choice Esau by all accounts should have been the first choice it's kind of this ridiculous scene where <laughs> Jacob has to put like animal hair on his arm to seem mm-hmm. like more of a man and and um, trick his father here uh God's choosing of uh of Jacob is is contrary to what we our intuition would be and yet it's it's still his his choosing uh, and so this is used for how God elects people then to salvation as well as far as uh well what about those who are not chosen that's never a question the Bible uh, asks us to address and so therefore it's not um one we dare address uh, we we do well though to only speak of, Election has God has spoken of it, and that's then for comfort for believers. He then transitions with ten, and he says, "You know, my heart's desire is that the Israelites would be saved. I mean he wants them to be saved, um, and he says they're very zealous. Um, it's just their zeal is not based on knowledge. And so he says these are religious people. It's just they're ignorant of how righteousness works. This is not that they're ignorant and that they're unlearned. Some of these are equivalent of PhDs in religious mm-hmm. studies, right?" Um, but of how righteousness might work. Uh, they, they know the righteousness of works, but not that of faith. Uh, and so Paul will then expand that, how this righteousness for faith is for all, that everyone who believes will be saved, and that it comes through hearing. Um, and so he will develop uh, how our election is made known through preaching and in our hearing of that, and that it finds those who did not. He's going to quote a lot of the Old Testament. He'll quote Isaiah 65 that it finds those who have not sought him. It's revealed to those who didn't ask for him. Uh, and so that is a, a reminder for us as well uh, as Christians that it, it is as, it is for mercy and not for anything that makes us different than anybody else, that we have been brought to faith.
0: And a famous passage there many of you probably even memorized. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. And we've talked about the power of preaching and the, the dynamis of the of the power of the gospel. All right, we need to wrap up a little bit here. I Just I, two notes on 11 and 12. Uh, we're going to get to two kingdoms later in the semester, so we'll, we'll skip 13 and unfortunately uh, 14, 15, 16. We're just going to have to give to the students uh, uh, on their own. When St. Paul talks about Israel in chapter 11, he's, he's talking about, believers here. He's not just talking, he's not talking about specifically, um, people of the Jewish race, right? And some people get that mixed up and, and, uh, all Israel is going to be saved. And so just by someone's ethnicity, they're going to be saved. Or some Christians will look at this to say, in order for God to come back, we need to save all of the Jewish people. And consequently, also have a Christian Jewish something uh state there in Israel and this messes up geopolitics we'll talk about that a little bit when we get to eschatology at the end of the semester too but just a just a note that when you're reading chapter 11 put in your mind that the true sons and daughters of Abraham are believers the true Israel are people that are believers um and and as we've said before throughout the semester um the glory of Israel is that everybody gets to be Jewish in the sense that they, the, this message of the Messiah is for everybody, right? This is the glory that why Israel is such a special, special nation. All right, chapter twelve. I just want to uh, talk about this idea of living sacrifices. So, in chapter twelve, um, Saint Paul uh, says this real quickly. Let me let me just quickly get it up here and uh, read it to you. <clears throat> Hold on. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, or some translations, this is your spiritual worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, good his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we got a couple words there that we got to play with. First of all, it's an oxymoron to think of something as a living sacrifice. A sacrifice by definition is dead. So what do you mean by a living sacrifice? Well, if I am a Christian going out into the world and I'm dying to myself, dying to my sinful nature and being resurrected as a saint to live a life of love, then I really am dying. I really am this this oxymoron, this living sacrifice. I think the the best example of this is a mother who literally, you know, her, her body takes a beating, not just through birth, but but uh, motherhood can be physically demanding, perhaps the most physically demanding vocation that there is out there. But when she dies to herself, she lives for others. Even, you know, as fathers, there are plenty of things that we give up for our children. We die to ourselves. We live for somebody else. And then St. Paul calls this uh, a spiritual worship. And so the word worship there... Uh, We remember, it's related to our, our word liturgy today. Your liturgy happens Monday through Saturday. So when we come to worship on Sunday morning, yeah, we say thank you, yeah, we say praises, but that's really for our benefit. The arrow primarily is going from God to us. We go there and we get the forgiveness of sins that we sinners so desperately need. Think of a waterfall of God's love coming down upon us. Then that love is then redirected out into the world and so this is our true worship is when we carry out our vocations when we are transformed into saints and no longer the pattern of this world that tends to be curved inward even though it may have a civic outward righteousness and praise god for that it's still an inward kind of me survival of the fittest or trying to rise through the ranks or make uh, a bunch of money or it's a very curved inward generally thing even if it at times can be look like it's curved outward and civic righteousness that's great and wonderful. But a uh, Christian is going to understand that he or she is called to a specific station and that station becomes a vocation and that calling has a caller God uh, a means the vocation, the person, the Christian, and then an object, which is the neighbor. So it's quite literally God's love through us for other people. And we'll talk about vocation a little bit later in the semester, but we should think about our worship life. Um, is I get from God on Sunday, and then I give Monday through Saturday as I die for others and live for other people. Now this doesn't mean that it's gonna be just a miserable self-sacrificing life that you exist. Remember that for every vocation you carry out, there are millions of vocations that have been carried out for you. You get to be the neighbor in in other places. And this is a gift from God. Uh, Police are a gift from God. Will they screw it up sometimes? Yes, but that protection that is offered is God through them for you. And you should never feel guilty about having these gifts. You never feel guilty about earning a salary or anything like that. Those are God's gift through other vocations towards you, for you. And uh, this life of dying and living is carried out in this concept of vocation. All right. I think that was probably a pretty tight uh, and pretty good Look at Romans. Obviously, there's much more. We have a whole course of uh, for Romans here on campus. We also have Pauline epistles, which is another uh, course here on WLC's campus, where we go a little bit more in depth into a lot of these Pauline epistles, these epistles, these letters that were written by Saint Paul. So keep struggling, uh, keep, uh, keep fighting, keep plugging along. Uh, students, we'll get through this. Um, if you are somebody who is a normal subscriber to our podcast, we hope this will be beneficial to you. So until next time, let the bird fly.